Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Chowchilla was a rural town in Madeira County, California. In 1976, the population of the farming community was around 5,000, spread across sprawling acres of land. Most of those living in Chowchilla had been born and raised there, in the Central Valley. The isolated countryside didn't provide much for kids to do during the summer months, so many enrolled in summer school. Dairyland Elementary had been assigned as the location for classes in the summer of 76, and over 125 children signed up to attend. 26 of those pupils would become victims of one of the most notorious mass kidnappings in U.S. history. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 38 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. After a long day at summer classes in Dairyland Elementary School in Chowchilla, the children walked out the front doors and made their way onto the big yellow Dairyland Union school bus as usual. They greeted the bus driver, a man they knew well, Edward Ray. 55-year-old Ed had been driving the school bus for years by July of 76 and knew the kids by name. He even knew most of their parents, as he, too, had gone to school in Chowchilla. Ed was married with adult children. His wife, Odessa, worked at the bank, and he ran the family ranch. It was just after 4 p.m. on July 15th, two weeks after the July 4th Bicentennial celebrations, and kids on Ray's bus were chatting happily as they went to their seats. Ed was a quiet man, but kids knew not to act up on the bus— or disrespect him. They didn't want to anyway because he was kind, 
and had no problem laughing and joking with them as the bus rolled down the dusty roads on a hot summer's evening. Summer school was coming to an end the following day, and the children had been swimming in a local pool that afternoon. They were excited to get home and tell their parents about how many links they had managed or how deep they'd been able to dive. The kids on the bus ranged from age 5 to 14, and Ed dropped a few of them home before he turned on to Avenue 21. Just ahead, a white Dodge van was blocking the road. Ed assumed it had broken down. Normally, a guy like Ed would stop and offer to help, but he had to get the kids home, and he was nothing if not reliable. Ed slowed down to drive around the van, but as he did, a man jumped out of the vehicle and ordered Ed to stop the bus. Two more men got out of the van carrying guns. The men were wearing pantyhose over their heads to obscure their facial features. One of the men told him to open the doors and move to the back of the bus. After opening the doors, Ed stayed in his seat, but glancing back at the 26 children on board, he decided to do as he was told. Many of the children were too young to understand the severity of the situation, but Ed knew that he had to comply to keep them safe. When six-year-old Larry Park was told to move to the back of the bus, he naively challenged the gunman's authority and told him, All right, but you better take me and my sister home, or my Aunt Syl will be on you like stink on skunk. All of the children were ordered to the back of the 35-foot bus and told to sit down and stay quiet. One of the men got off the bus and into the van before the vehicles pulled off in the same direction. They drove along Avenue 21 for a couple of miles before turning down a rural road surrounded by farmland. The bus was parked in a drainage ditch and partially concealed by bamboo shoots that grew along the bank of the ditch. The white van reversed up to the side of the bus, and the kids were split into two groups, and the first group of 12 were forced into the back of the van. After no more children could fit into the van, it pulled forward and the green van pulled up. Again, the children were ordered to get into the van, and Ed Ray was told to get in with them. The threat of the double-barreled shotgun kept them in line, and, after the bus was empty, the van doors shut, leaving the group in darkness. The windows were covered and painted over, keeping out the light and keeping the heat in. The sobs of the terrified children drown out the noise of the engines as the vans began to drive once more. Hours passed in the back of the stuffy, unventilated vans. Some children cried themselves to sleep. Others sat in stunned silence. All of them wanted desperately to go home. Within an hour, the parents of the kidnapped children knew something wasn't right. Calls came in to the Madera County Sheriff in quick succession as worried parents waited in vain for their children to arrive home. A search was launched and over 50 officers were dispatched to find the missing bus. Aerial searches were conducted to allow the officers to scan the 50 miles of farmland that surrounded the small community. Just before 8 p.m., an officer in one of the search planes spotted the yellow school bus among the reeds off of Road 14 and a half. As officers on the ground arrived at the scene and boarded the bus, they noticed that dust had settled on the seats, indicating the children had been taken off the bus shortly after it was parked in the ditch. 
Some of the kids' belongings still marked the places they sat on their way home. Their dampened towels from the swimming trip, crafts they made in class, but there was nothing to indicate where they had been taken. The keys were not in the ignition, and speculation that the children had been snatched by organized criminals was growing by the minute. Madera County Sheriff Ed Bates, who had worked as an FBI agent previously, told the San Francisco Examiner, We have here a mysterious disappearance. There is no indication of foul play, but all of the children are gone. It could be a crank. It could be a kidnapping. Maybe a terrorist or even a distraught parent. I'm very seldom at a loss for words, but in this case, I can tell you I really don't know what happened. William Parker's eight-year-old daughter, Barbara, was among the missing children. He said that he had begun calling the Chowchilla police when his little girl was just ten minutes late. He said he believed it was a kidnapping orchestrated by a political or terrorist group, and told the Fresno Bee, I hope deep in my heart the people who have the children will take care of them. While the thought of an extremist abducting 26 children and their bus driver was horrifying, others feared that the Zodiac Killer, who had murdered many people across Northern California six years earlier, had made good on a promise he made in 1969. The Zodiac once claimed that he would wipe out a school bus some morning, just shoot off the front tire and pick off the kitties as they come bouncing. It seemed more likely that it was a kidnap for ransom situation, but Chowchilla was not an affluent area. Most of the children came from working class or farming backgrounds. Their parents did not have a lot of money. Regardless, parents were advised on what to say if a ransom call came through. Parents kept vigil along Avenue 21. Some were missing four children. The small community of just under 5,000 people banded together to help find the children in any way they could as the hours passed and night fell. The telephone lines kept jamming as people called in to report anything suspicious they saw, or any potential sighting of the missing children. The FBI were called in to assist in the search, and door-to-door inquiries were carried out throughout the night in the middle of a rainstorm, but to no avail. One of the last children to be dropped off as the bus made its route had told investigators they had seen a white van in front of the bus as it pulled away. So, the police tried to trace any similar vehicles in the area. The white van was almost 100 miles from Chowchilla by the time police knew to look for it. Ed Ray and the 26 children had spent 11 hours in the back of the cramped vans when the vehicles came to a stop at 3.30 a.m. With no light in the back of the vehicles and no bathrooms, many of the children had wet themselves. Others were soaked with sweat. Their own as well as perspiration that clung to the interior of the van and dripped onto them as they cried as quietly as they could. What little air there was inside of the van felt thick with heat and the smell of urine and vomit. The children would gag and gasp for breath, but the pungent ammonia smell burned when they did. Ed Ray tried his best to keep the children calm, but he himself was terrified. Their abductors had not told them anything. So when the vehicle finally stopped, they did not know what fate awaited them once the back doors were opened. But the doors did not open right away. The kidnappers erected a tent to conceal the back of the van before they let Ed and the children out. 
Ed went first. The bright light pierced through the darkness the children's eyes had become accustomed to over the previous 11 hours, and the gunman's shadows grew more menacing as their silhouettes stretched across the ground into the gap between the van doors before they were shut tightly once more. None of the children wanted to be the next one taken from the van. Although they were desperate to get out of it, they were afraid of what would happen to them. One by one, they went out into the cover of the tent. Lights illuminated their captors as they struggled to bear their own weight on tired legs. Squinting upwards, they listened carefully to the muffled words of the gunmen as they were instructed to strip down to their underwear and climb down a ladder into a dark hole in the earth. As each child climbed into the darkness, their names and ages were jotted down on a piece of paper, and something belonging to them was collected. Four sisters aged between six and twelve, pairs of siblings, cousins, and classmates. Ed was waiting at the bottom of the ladder, which stood inside a metal container buried twelve feet underground. It had been too dark for Ed to see the face of his wristwatch while he was inside the van, but with the pillar of light coming from the tent above him, he could see that it was after 3.30 in the morning. It would later be discovered that the underground prison was a furniture van that had been buried in the earth, and a hole had been cut into the roof to allow the captive children and their bus driver to climb inside. A number of mattresses were crudely strewn around the base of the container, as were dusty blankets, ten five-gallon water containers, and a stash of dry food like potato chips, bread, and cereal. Holes had been cut over the wheel wells, makeshift toilets for children with incontinence forced upon them during the long trip in the van. As the last of the 19 girls and seven boys were lowered into the trailer, their innocent curiosity soon turned to fear as the hole in the roof was covered with a steel plate. They heard the unmistakable sound of dirt being shoveled over it. As the tomb was sealed, their abductors had warned them that no one could hear their cries and that they would be back for them within 24 to 48 hours. The children began to panic once more, in the dark yet again, with just a few flashlights between them and a crudely rigged ventilation pipe that funneled air into the container from above ground. The wire-covered walls of the trailer were warped from the weight of the soil surrounding it, and a pillar was used to stabilize the ceiling that seemed as though it was going to cave in at any moment. For hours, the children sat in the dark, dusty trailer, rationing the food and stagnant water. Eventually, some of the kids cried themselves to sleep on the dirty mattresses next to their classmates. Back in Chowchilla, no one slept unless they had been sedated by a local doctor who was called in to see many of the missing children's parents that night. Candlelight vigils were held across town as the community collectively held their breath, waiting for the phone to ring with news about the children. As the children arrived for the last day of summer school, there were 26 empty places and the plans for a fun Olympics-themed day was scrapped in favor of a picnic. Karen Wagner, a teacher's aide volunteering at Dairyland School, spoke with the San Francisco examiner and said, There's nothing we can do. We just know they were here, and now they're gone. By the time classes were dismissed in Chowchilla, the food had run out inside the underground trailer, and the blocks supporting the pillars that held up the roof had been dislodged, so the roof was beginning to cave in. 
Ed Ray and two of the older children, 14-year-old Mike Marshall and 10-year-old Robert Gonzalez, knew they needed to act quickly and try and escape before they were crushed or suffocated. They pulled the mattresses across the floor and stacked them on top of each other beneath the covered hole they had climbed through. After pushing against the steel plate for what felt like an eternity, it suddenly shifted and Mike was able to see two 100-pound tractor batteries that had been used to weigh it down. The space above the covering was clear of dirt as a wooden frame kept the soil from falling in on them. The hot and heavy air inside the trailer was stifling and they had to use the water sparingly to bathe and drink in in order to keep cool. Ed and the older boys took turns taking handfuls of dirt from the sides of the 30-inch wooden frame and throwing it down into the container to dig a tunnel. Mike Marshall later told the Las Vegas Sun, The bus driver totally freaked out. He told me it looked like we were going to have to stay down there and kick the bucket. I noticed he wasn't handling the situation very good, but I thought, well, if this guy thinks we're going to kick the bucket, what the heck am I doing down here? For almost four hours, they scraped through the four feet of dirt until they finally broke through to the surface. Mike climbed out of the trailer first. He had no idea where they were, but he recalled seeing trees and mounds of sand. He was just relieved not to see the kidnappers. One by one, Ed Ray lifted the children up through the hole before climbing out himself. Stumbling through a quarry toward the sound of machinery, the group, in just their underwear, were spotted by workers around 8 p.m. At around the same time, an anonymous call came in to Alameda County deputies. The woman on the other end of the line said that Livermore would become famous if they went to the quarry because the children were there. Once the police were dispatched to Livermore Quarry, an all-points bulletin was issued for three white men aged between 30 and 40 years of age, driving one dark-colored and one light-colored van. When word reached Chowchilla that the children had been found alive after 30 hours, there was an overwhelming sense of relief amongst the anxious parents who had been waiting for news. Mike Marshall's grandmother spoke with the San Francisco Examiner to express her daughter's relief that Mike had been found. Mike's mother had caught him drinking beers with a friend the night before he was kidnapped, and, as a punishment, she told him he would have to make his own way home from summer school. Mike decided to hitch a ride on the bus. Joan Brown, whose children 9-year-old Jennifer and 10-year-old Jeff were aboard the bus, said that she never gave up hope that they would be found safe and well. She told reporters, I knew all along they were safe. Knew it. I don't know how I knew it, but I did. My arms have been around those children. I never had any picture in my mind about any awful or terrible thing happening. When I left the sheriff's office, I told the sheriff, they are going to be all right. At the quarry, the children were briefly examined and photographed before being boarded onto another bus, the last thing they did before they were abducted over 30 hours earlier. The bus was driven to the Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center in Pleasanton, the only place big enough to hold the 27 who had escaped captivity. They were given sodas and fast food and dressed in inmates' overalls while they waited for their turn to have a 15-minute medical examination before being sent back to the classroom in what looked like a prison. 
the children were questioned by the FBI and police for a period of time before they were allowed to make the 100-mile journey back to Chowchilla. But they had questions of their own, and it was getting close to midnight. Once again, the children were herded onto a bus, but they were finally heading home. As the bus arrived in Chowchilla at around 3 a.m., the children who had managed to fall asleep were jolted awake by the sounds of cheering and horns honking on the street. Others had woken themselves up out of nightmares with screams of, Leave us alone! Leave us alone! Reporters and news anchors jostled through the crowd as the bus doors opened and the children were carried into the police station. Bright flashes from the camera bulbs appeared in front of the exhausted children, and questions were fired at them from all sides. But once they got into the station, they were returned to the sanctuary of their parents' arms. Media continued to swarm Chowchilla for days. Hundreds of journalists had congregated at the first press conference given by Ed Ray at 5.40 a.m., just hours after they got back. He relayed what had happened and told the reporters, we thought we were going to die. He had memorized a part of the license plate from one of the vans and gave the information to the FBI, and a statewide search for the abductors had already been launched. As investigators were back at the quarry searching for clues and uncovering the 26-feet-long truck bed, another phone call came in from an anonymous woman, this time to the wife of the Chowchilla mayor, Jim Dumas. The caller said that it wasn't over, and there would be more kidnappings. Someone else reported seeing a van matching the description of the one driven by the kidnappers. A sketch published in newspapers led to a tip about someone who had purchased two vans before the abduction. All the clues led to a 24-year-old man called Frederick Newhall Woods IV, the son of the owner and operator of the California rock gravel quarry where Ed and the children had been held. Woods also had a minor criminal record. He and two friends, James and Richard Schoenfeld, had been arrested for joyriding a couple of years prior, but Woods was nowhere to be found. A search of his home turned up handwritten notes and plans tying him to the kidnapping as well as guns, and when the vans were found, they contained items belonging to the children. The following day, 22-year-old Richard Schoenfeld presented himself at the district attorney's office with his lawyer and father. Richard was arrested and remanded into custody on bail set at $1 million, while the police and FBI launched a nationwide hunt for Woods and James Schoenfeld, whose arrest warrants had already been signed. The three faced 43 charges in total, including 27 counts of kidnapping and 16 counts of robbery. An all-points bulletin issued for the suspects described them as armed and dangerous due to the fact that they were armed during the commission of the crime. The investigators had established that Woods purchased the Palo Alto Moving Company trailer in October or November of the previous year, and the evidence they had collected suggested that the trio had been planning the mass kidnapping for a substantial period of time. Frederick Newhall Woods, James Schoenfeld, and Richard Schoenfeld all came from affluent backgrounds. Woods was related to the Newhall family, a prominent and wealthy family that owned thousands of acres of farmland in Southern California. Woods' only sister had Down syndrome, 
And, according to CBS, she was institutionalized, so he stood to inherit millions from his parents. Woods had been married at one point to a woman called Sanjil Paget. They had met when Woods was a senior and Sanjil was a junior. After they got married in 1971, they moved into an apartment in Mountain View. But Woods couldn't hold down a job, and he was not an affectionate husband. She told the New York Times, He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he had everything and saved everything, but he was lonely, and it was lonely living with him. Sanjil said that Woods' father expected too much of him, and he could never meet his father's expectations. Their marriage ended in 1972 after just one year, and Woods and the Schoenfelds were arrested for joyriding two years later. This charge was later reduced to a misdemeanor, and they were fined $125 each, something wealthy young men had no trouble paying. Their mugshots and prints remained on file. Woods met an aspiring filmmaker, Dave Boston, at his family estate and quickly became enthralled with the prospect of being in the industry himself. Woods lived in a converted outbuilding on his parents' 78-acre estate called Hawthorne at the time and decided to partner with Boston to set up Township Enterprises, a company that bought, restored, and sold vehicles to raise money to make movies. Soon after, he enlisted the help of his high school friend, James Schoenfeld. In mid-1975, the fledgling company set their sights on a 20th-century mansion that they wanted to purchase and restore, but they didn't have enough cash. Some people who knew Woods did not seem surprised that he was being linked to one of the largest kidnappings in U.S. history, but descriptions of the Schoenfelds were far removed from that of Woods. The Schoenfelds also came from a well-off family, but their money had been hard-earned. Their father, Dr. Schoenfeld, was a podiatrist in Atherton. James Schoenfeld was articulate and intelligent. He kept a diary and was fascinated by linguistic code. James had invented his own code, using Russian and Arabic letters and translating them to Roman characters. The younger brother, Richard, was described as real normal by a former classmate. That same classmate said, It would really surprise me if he had anything to do with this thing. We were friends, but we didn't hang around together. He just seemed the normal kind of guy. After recruiting 22-year-old Richard Schoenfeld, they began to discuss ways to get cash to buy the mansion and give them their own money so they didn't have to live off their parents' wealth. Drawing inspiration from a script written by Wood's friend Boston and a scene in the movie Dirty Harry, they decided they would kidnap a bus full of schoolchildren. They started making plans and investing in their scheme. Each point was written in English or code by James Schoenfeld, and the incriminating documents would be found less than a week after the kidnapping. Each point had a possible problem written next to it and a possible solution, most of which simply read, hope for the best. They purchased three vans that would be used and painted them after refitting the interior and making a partition to separate them from their captives. Two of the vans would be parked at a predetermined hidden location, and the third would be used to transport Fred and Rick to the hijacking location. Each van was fitted with citizen band transceivers, or CBT radio, so they could communicate as they drove the children from the hidden location to the quarry. 
Woods bought the Palo Alto trailer that would be used as the underground prison in late 1975. And by December, they buried it in an excavated lake bed at his father's quarry. When they covered it with dirt, it began to collapse under the weight, so they reinforced the roof with a piece of timber held in place by stabilizing blocks. They used the 100-pound tractor batteries to hold down the steel plate covering the hole they had cut in the roof of the trailer and connected them to fans that fed air into the trailer through vent pipes. They also bought dozens of mattresses and blankets from a surplus store. Woods and the Schoenfelds decided to do it in Chowchilla because it was far enough away from Livermore, but close enough that they could get the kidnapped children into the trailer within 12 hours. James Schoenfeld would later say, I thought the police would search up to about a hundred miles, you know, search every square inch. If we were beyond that point, it would be less likely for them to find us. They cased the schools and followed the Dairyland Union buses to learn the route. The plan was for Woods and Rick to board the bus and disable the driver with chloroform. They opted to use a shotgun and pistol as leverage instead. They had heard the state had a surplus of $5 billion in the annual budget and believed that a ransom of $5 million paid by the state was realistic. They thought that the statute of limitations on kidnapping elapsed after seven years, so they thought all they had to do was lay low until then. They accounted for the possibility that the suitcases were bugged and spent almost $1,000 on an x-ray machine. They also planned their escape if things went wrong. The group had taken note of males born between 1944 and 1955 who had died before the age of 24 and began to get fraudulent identifications in their name. Woods assumed the name of Ralph Snyder in his fake ID, the name of a boy who had died age six, but would have been 24 if he was alive in 1976. They also rented a warehouse to store the vehicles and evidence and a trailer to use as a hideout. They were going to deliver the ransom demands according to a drafted note written by James Schoenfeld. It contains the following. Your bus has been kidnapped. Put two and a half million dollars in each of the suitcases. Total five million dollars. Use old bills. Have at the Oakland Police Station. Further instructions pending until 10.05 p.m. Sunday. We are Beelzebub. The name Beelzebub came from The Exorcist, a recently released horror movie that had given James Schoenfeld nightmares according to his diary entries. The second part of the ransom draft letter said the following, Take suitcases to Oakland International Airport. Have CHP plane pick up and transfer same at 1,000 above ground level to Santa Cruz, direct, then follow Highway 17 to Oakland International. Speed should be 120 miles per hour, estimated ground speed. Rest of message in five minutes. After this message was supposed to be delivered at 10.05 p.m. on Sunday, three days after the kidnapping, Fred Woods was supposed to call and tell the negotiators to watch for a specific light combination before dropping the money and returning to the airport. They had bought a Cadillac and painted it completely black apart from the front and rear windshields to avoid detection as they raced to pick up the money. They had even considered hijacking a plane and throwing dummies out of it to trick any police surveillance. But they never even got to deliver the ransom call. The phone lines were jammed with concerned parents and false tips, and by the time Ed Ray and the children escaped on Friday night, 
Woods and the Schoenfelds scrambled to go on the run. As it turned out, it was extremely fortunate that the victims managed to escape when they did, because the batteries running the air vents ran out in the early hours of Saturday morning, and they would have quickly suffocated underground. This would have resulted in one of the largest, unpoliticized mass murders in history. In fact, the investigators could not stand to be inside the trailer for long because it was so difficult to breathe in there. The hot, pungent air that hung inside burned their lungs. When news bulletins carried reports that the children had been found alive and well, their kidnappers grabbed prepackaged bags full of what they would need for a life on the run and met at the warehouse where they kept the vans. James and Woods made their way to Washington, where Woods boarded a flight to Vancouver using the fake ID of Ralph Snyder. James only had his own ID, so he drove to the border with their guns and belongings. They arranged to meet in Vancouver at the post office at certain times for four weeks, and if they didn't meet up within that time, they would go their separate ways. Rick Schoenfeld returned to his parents' house and told them what they had done. He was terrified to turn himself in, but also too worried to go on the run. James was refused entry at the border, so he attempted to pawn his guns to get more money to make the story of going to Canada for a holiday seem more likely. He didn't realize he had left a gun in the center console, and after being denied access across the border for a second time, he drove to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Woods had no problem getting into Canada, and he stayed in a hotel under a false name. He had already been identified as a suspect at this point, and the FBI also received a tip from an attorney who said that Dr. Schoenfeld had called looking for representation for someone who was involved in the kidnapping. After obtaining warrants and seizing evidence from Woods' parents' estate, the warehouse he rented, and the quarry, Rick handed himself in. James Schoenfeld was feeling defeated. He wrote notes while living out of his car on the fourth night of being on the run. He wrote that he expected to serve life with a minimum of three to seven years if he turned himself in, and hoped that the justice system would take into account that they never intended to harm anyone. One entry reads, I can live with myself because I know I would not have hurt anybody permanently or bodily. Turn yourself in. It's the only respectable thing to do. Can turning oneself in be respectable when to commit a crime in itself shows disrespect for the law, and in turn, by definition, under those circumstances, cannot be respectable? Trouble is, you don't want to put down roots or build an estate because at any time it could all be taken away. The big Q could take you away at any time, up to seven years from the time a warrant was put out. Woods was running out of money in Vancouver and wrote to an old classmate, asking him to pass letters to his girlfriend and parents. One letter was addressed to his filmmaker friend, David Boston. It read, in part, If you want to make real money, ever, on a movie, write it about our deal. I will tell you everything that happened up to it and where it ended, and I'll tell you how it should have gone up to the end. My ending is not exciting enough, so you might have to kill some people or something. If you do make it into a film, all I want is a percentage of it. You make it up, I don't care how much, but be fair. I'm glad you were not in on it now. It was a good plan. I wanted to put more weight on the cover, but Rick said, oh no, they can't lift that. Wait till I see him again. They'll hang him for sure anyhow. 
Woods believed he could make some money by selling his story, but his classmate reported the letter to the FBI and the RCMP were briefed to capture and arrest him when he went to the prearranged meeting point he had agreed to with James Schoenfeld when they parted ways days earlier. On the same day Woods' location became known, James Schoenfeld was back in California, making arrangements to surrender himself. Before he could, he was apprehended by the FBI while driving along the freeway. The case took months to go through the courts. All three of the accused were facing 27 counts of kidnapping, five of which alleged bodily harm, and 18 counts of armed robbery. There was a mountain of evidence against them. The notes, the receipts, their fingerprints, hundreds of items could be admitted into trial. In July 1977, they pleaded guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping without inflicting bodily injury, and the prosecution agreed to drop the armed robbery charges, but insisted on the bodily harm charges, so a bench trial was ordered. In November of that year, Judge Deegan presided over the trial where Ray and the children testified about their ordeal. Some of the children had been cut, bruised, or suffered heat exhaustion during the incident, and on December 15, 1977, the judge delivered his verdict. He told the court, I have resolved an opinion that the prosecution has established beyond reasonable doubt that there was bodily harm under California law. I made my findings based on the testimony of these children. I don't think they have any guile about it. I think they're telling the truth. The kidnapping itself was a classic violation of bodily security, and this was an aggravated kidnapping. Judge Deegan said that while the defendants had left some provisions for their captives in the form of food and water, he felt that they were indifferent to the welfare of the children. The children were not old enough to endure such treatment. These children were not told why they were there. They were impressed with the fear they were going to die. These children were put through an ordeal by terror. Fred Woods and James and Rick Schoenfeld were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. They would later appeal the verdict. The majority ruling from the appellate court found that the injuries sustained by the victims did not constitute bodily harm in the eyes of the law, and their sentences for aggravated kidnap with bodily harm were dropped. They were resentenced, but they still faced life in prison. In fact, they faced 27 concurrent life sentences for each person they had kidnapped. The new sentences meant that the kidnappers were eligible to apply for parole just six years after the crime was committed. So as the children tried to move forward, they were reminded of their ordeal time and time again at short intervals over the three decades that followed. Ed Ray and the children were hailed as heroes, and a day to commemorate their bravery was held in Chowchilla on August 22, 1976. They were also taken to Disneyland and national parks in an attempt to compensate for what they had been through. On the surface, many of the children seemed to adjust well to what had happened. They were assessed by child psychiatrist Lenora Terror, who found that they had signs of post-traumatic stress. Many were unable to sleep alone. They feared the dark. They suffered with incontinence. They screamed in their sleep. Some of the children tried their best to forget about what had happened, and many of the younger children were fortunate enough to be able to put it out of their mind. While Ed Ray was lauded in the media as the children's savior, 
Some of the parents felt that he had not done enough, and some of the children recalled that it was 14-year-old Mike Marshall that had secured their escape from the underground bunker they'd been left in. In fact, Mike Marshall would later testify that Ray had all but given up and cried when he told him that it looked like they would have to kick the bucket. Larry Park remembers it the same way. In 1999, he told the Las Vegas Sun, Ed Ray was pretty much a lost cause. He basically had his head in his hands and was pretty much mumbling to himself, saying we were going to die. He didn't give us much of a chance, really. Both Larry and Mike suffered with addiction issues throughout their teens and early adulthood to cope with the trauma. They have since gotten sober and speak candidly about their experiences. Larry Park has even written a book called Why Me? According to some sources, the second boy who helped Mike Marshall dig their way out was arrested and convicted of child molestation in the late 1980s. While many of the victims grew up, they tried to fade into obscurity, not wanting to be defined by a two-day tragedy. But for the Browns, whose children Jennifer and Jeff were on board the bus, tragedy struck once more. In June 1981, 15-year-old Jeff was killed in a freak accident while working with his father at their food processing business. Each time an anniversary rolls around, the impact of the mass kidnapping is still evident in the words of those who were taken and those who waited for them to come home. Ed Ray returned to being a bus driver. He later bought the bus he and the children had been kidnapped from. He passed away in May 2012, aged 91. To date, Woods and the Schoenfelds have had over 65 parole hearings. Rick Schoenfeld, who was granted some leniency at sentencing due to his age, was released in June 2012 after serving 36 years in prison. James Schoenfeld was released in 2015. At one of James' parole hearings, he explained the reasoning behind the kidnap. He said, We needed multiple victims to get multiple millions, and we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them, and they don't fight back. They're vulnerable. They'll do what we tell them to do, he told the board. The plan was to hijack a school bus. We felt it had to be a school bus because the state would be responsible for the occupants on a school bus. The state pays us the ransom. We're happy forever. All of our troubles are solved and we let the victims go. Everybody's happy. The state is only out a tiny percentage of their surplus. I lied to myself thinking that nobody would get hurt. I had no consideration for the feelings and the trauma that I was causing. At around the same time, Jennifer Brown Hyde, who was nine at the time of the kidnap, told reporters, It affected my life, my parents' lives, and my children's lives. For me, it's having to deal with hatred and anger towards other human beings, and that's a struggle that almost 40 years later, I still have to deal with. Until recently, I slept with a nightlight. I have anxiety attacks when I'm in a confined space, and it's a problem living in the South where we have tornado warnings and we have to take cover in storm shelters. They took away my ability to be free. You don't go from being buried alive and thinking you're going to die to having a normal childhood. I'm fortunate I'm not incarcerated or hooked on drugs, which is how some of the kids dealt with it. I'm as okay as a broken person can be. 
Both of the Schoenfelds expressed remorse from the outset. The same could not be said for the alleged ringleader, Fred Woods. While the earlier parole hearings were heavily contested by victims and advocates alike, that has slowly dwindled. By 2019, Fred Woods was due for his 17th parole hearing, and it was alleged that his estate had been offering money to the victims if they would show their support for his release. Some are believed to have taken the offer. It did not matter in the end because Woods was denied parole. It emerged that even behind bars, he was scheming to make money, setting up an unauthorized Christmas tree business. In 2016, his trust fund had been used in a settlement filed against him by some of the victims. In March 2022, Fred Woods was approved and recommended for parole. He is 70 years old, and as of June 2022, his release has not yet been made public. The greed and boredom-fueled plot of three well-off young men forever changed the lives of 26 children and their bus driver. Chowchilla will always be associated with their crime, and it is only due to the resilience and determination of kids like Mike Marshall that one of the largest mass kidnappings in America did not end up being one of the largest mass murders. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.